AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for December 8th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we are joined by John Hogboom. Welcome, John. Thanks. Stan Erlov, welcome. Hey, thank you. And Matt Kaiser, welcome, Matt. Thanks. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, I guess first what we'd like to do is uh, we're approaching the holidays, and uh, we actually had talked a little bit previously about the uh, SANS holiday hack. And Perhaps, uh, Matt, you can give us a little rundown. Yeah, on sure. So it's a yearly thing that SANS puts together. Uh, Ed Scotus was on the show a couple weeks back, and he was promoting for it. it sounds like it's going to be even more exciting than last year. Uh, I played last year. I had a lot of fun doing it. I mm -hmm. think it's got challenges that are good for entry level as well as more advanced people. So I think everyone should always be able to get something worthwhile out of it. Right. And they always spend a lot of time working on this, this, this challenge. Mm. And you don't even have to be an expert to do this. I mean, you can just kind of go in and start getting an idea of, uh, you know, learning some things in the process. It's an opportunity to uh, do a little hacking in a legitimate way mm -hmm. and uh, get a little learning under your belt. So it sounds like a good thing to do. Now, what we thought we'd do for the program this week is last year we had made some what I like to call forecasts. We had this discussion. You know, we, we're not really, uh, you know, prophets of any sort. We can't really do predictions, but we can do some forecasts. We do a lot of analysis through the year. We see some trending that's taking place. We did some forecasting last year. We thought we'd take a little time and discuss our predictions or our forecasts from last year and uh, see how well we did. And uh, that'll be sort of a precursor to what we'll do in a subsequent week to discuss uh, what our forecast might be for next year. So what we can do here is uh, we'll start with you, John, okay. and uh, I'm on the share with seat. us what your forecast was from last year. And that's So last year, my forecast was that APT is going to lose its novelty. And when I used the term novelty, I was kind of uh, thinking of it in the context that you know, it's, no, it's kind of emerging from one of these things where it's only kind of whispered in you know, back rooms by a small group of people, maybe mm -hmm. in government or military space, to more, you know, mainstream, everybody kind of knows about that. And I think a lot of that has actually come true. It's probably even true last year or the year before, but it's really, uh, in terms of both the amount of threat intelligence sharing uh, organizations that have sprung up in this past year or so, mm -hmm. um, such as Threat Connect, Threat Stream, Red Sky Alliance, there's all these different groups out there that kind of uh, collate a lot of these threat indicators and make it available to the masses. So now mm -hmm. everybody's kind of aware in the loop, even though they might not be directly impacted by a lot of these uh, nation state uh, actors targeting mm -hmm. their particular sector. They're aware of what's going on in the various sectors and who's being targeted and whatnot and how those threats are manifesting. All right. um, uh, also, I think uh, that a lot of the large scale breaches have been more publicized in the media uh, than they have been in years past. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know that there's been a lot of a lot of uh, various articles that kind of get a lot more attention. Whereas in the old days, nobody talked about it, and the media didn't get looped in on the fact that some of these events even happened. Um, and then the other thing I was going to mention is just looking back at the past year. I thought it was a little interesting in terms of the nation-state actors that we did see 
uh, covered more, and uh, both Russia, uh, so there's the Russian uh, breach where I guess it was APT28, also Sofasi or Cozy Duke, mm -hmm. goes by a bunch of different names based on their tool sets, but they had targeted the White House um, as well as NATO, and the previous year they had uh, gotten into the State Department, um, so that was a pretty big story. Um, also, uh, there was a Russian breach by the APT29 group with the hammer toss tool set into the Pentagon email system, which if everybody remembers, they actually had to shut down that email system. It was the unclassified email system for the Pentagon, but it was shut down for maybe a week or something, I think mm -hmm. it was, back in the middle of uh, the year August timeframe. And then there's also TG2889, which is another uh, group that's Iranian-based. We talked about this on the show as well. Uh, they've been kind of in the mix doing this tactic where they create a very sophisticated network of LinkedIn profiles, and then they try to coerce users to befriend them mm -hmm. uh, or LinkedIn with them so that they can use that as a means to further get inroads into those organizations mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, and then I also mentioned Dooku 2.0, which came out. I won't mention who the principal actor set was behind that one. However, same operator as Dooku and uh, Stuxnet, who I think we have some speculations who might be behind that. So it's not all Chinese-based. You know, China has been really the, the big boy in the room in terms mm -hmm. of getting APT, nation-state espionage, really off the ground, cyber espionage. Mm -hmm. And it um, uh, looks like a lot of these other uh, countries are starting to get into the mix more and more now. Yeah. So. You know, I'm surprised you left out Equation Group because I thought that well, was actually true. that was yeah. a report that described what I felt to be the most sophisticated. It was very sophisticated. I mean, really kind of almost, you know, sci-fi in some respects compared to a lot of the other attack activities that have been described. So, right. And I just it, overlooked that one. Okay. <laughs> it just came to mind when you were describing Dooku. I said, but the, um, you know, I think another aspect of this is probably uh, perhaps very important to consider is, I don't know, what's your opinion? Do you think that this has kind of gone over the deep end that is, you know, maybe some things are being described as APT that really aren't, or at least accusing nation states that <coughs> might even just be something simpler than that? Well, I think there is a lot more overlap now and confusion because I know there are toolkits that are being used by both nation-state actors mm -hmm. as well as by crimeware or just what I would call mm -hmm. run-of-the-mill type yeah. of uh, malware organizations that they're not really looking to gather intelligence more, just you know, you know that regular run-of-the-mill kind of malware thing. So I think the lines have gotten blurred a little bit and sometimes mm -hmm. things get accused when they shouldn't have been. I also think that there's a lot of media coverage and really good reporting that comes out of a lot of these tool sets. But for the most part, I would say 1% of the people who are actually reading them probably are even gonna get impacted by them. You know? Whereas for the most part, when you're talking about some of these other types of tool sets like Drydex and these things, which are your run-of-the-mill malware, mm -hmm. pretty much everybody's gonna get them in your organization because right. it's gonna get spammed to all your users and whatnot and you're gonna come across that. But a lot of these APT-specific things, while it's really good to understand the tactics and techniques that they're using, mm -hmm. uh, more often than not, you're probably not gonna see it. Or if you are, you're probably in a sector that uh, has really interesting intelligence, mm -hmm. like you know, defense or aerospace, things like that. Okay, one more question, and I'd like to also kind of make a point, though. But 
how do you think, and I, I mean, this is some, gonna be somewhat speculative. I don't necessarily expect you to know the answer and for each of you guys, but I'm interested in your opinion. Clearly, the information is more in the public domain, well-recognized. Do you think organizations are really acknowledging or you know, responding to it, becoming more prepared to protect themselves against these attacks? I see some blanks. I'll, I'll come and first say, uh, in some respect, yes. I guess it depends on, I think, uh, at a very bare minimum level, at least you know some of the base indicators to look at mm -hmm. or look for, and you can do a little retroactive looking, whereas before you might not have known anything and it's just been happening in your networking, you have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that people are going to the next level and saying, well, let me follow this actor set, because I know they're not going to stay at this command and control. Yeah. They're going to change up their techniques and their tool sets that they're using. Mm -hmm. And am I going to be able to follow them on my own without somebody else giving yeah. me that intelligence? Um, oh, good like segue. That that was, you're actually leading into my sort of my next uh, sort of statement here. But I, just before that, I think um, just my observation, having caught, you know talking with customers and things, I think the large organizations are doing pretty well with that. You know, significant investment in the financial industry to mm -hmm. help protect themselves against advanced attacks, whether it's you know organized crime or whether it's uh, you know nation state attacks. Sophisticated attacks. They've been doing a lot of work in that. But I think we've also observed that the notion of threat intelligence sharing is being is is understood by the advanced attackers, and that they are implementing countermeasures in a sense. So we've seen a lot more diversity in the command and control that they might be using to help make you know. That piece of the IP address information that you had about, you know, a command and control server, well, it was only used once and it was, you know, for one specific target, for one specific situation, for one specific event, it's useless to anybody else. So have a blast sharing it, you know. Well, that's, I think that's the thing. It's very easy to share that kind of level of information, IP right. addresses, file hashes, things you can load and automatically look for. But sharing TTPs in a meaningful way that you know, you can express it automatically and then take some mm -hmm. sort of action without, you know, dedicating some sort of, sort of staffing to understanding it and then, to, I don't know, doing a risk assessment or something like that. Yeah. That's a lot more work. Yeah, I think, you're, I, I think you have it right on. It's, so it's a, what you really want to do in terms of threat sharing, or at least my opinion, sharing with you, is um, I, we want to get to a position where you're basically climbing the learning curve with the attackers as opposed to trying to understand what could be very diverse and automated management infrastructure. Mm -hmm. The next one here, I'm gonna go ahead and go. Uh, this isn't exactly the order we covered them last year, but the, uh, the next one was uh, related to Internet of Things, and the prediction was that this, the issues that we had already been tracking were gonna get worse. And, uh, well, I think I nailed it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's worse than it's ever been. <laughs> so anyway, let's talk about this one a little bit. First, I want to make a distinction. I think we've talked about this, but I'll formalize a little bit. I want to make a clear distinction between what, it, I don't know if it's fair to call them the Internet of Secure Things, but things that are at least prepared to be connected to a network and uh, distinguishing those from what I like to call the Internet of Insecure Things. So, you know, the things that are prepared to be connected to a network are ones that are properly designed and tested for security attributes. And, in fact, the best way to do it would be to also add a layer of network protections on top of that. There's, you know, all systems are flawed. 
I'll share a few examples a little bit later on. All systems are flawed, and so it's a matter of whether those flaws have been discovered. The attackers are motivated to discover them. And uh, so having additional layers that make it more difficult to either discover them or exploit those is certainly in your benefit. So talking first a little bit about the Internet of Insecure Things, some of the attributes that I have seen associated with these. First of all, and these are sort of in, in the order of it should be obvious, you know, the, the, at the top of the list, for Pete's sake, you should not be exposing unnecessary services to the internet. And uh, we've seen a number of examples like this uh, where uh, uh, small office, home office routers with services like network time protocol exposed to the internet. What, I mean, why would a small office, home office router be a time server for the internet? Doesn't make sense. A DNS server exposed to the internet. Uh, character generator, these all get used for reflective denial service attacks. When you have these small devices connected all over the internet, uh, it facilitates those, uh, those attacks and certainly doesn't do anything performance for performance of the router. So, uh, you know, at the minim bare minimum, any device that's connected to the network, even local networks, but certainly to the internet, need to be tested for security correctness and any of the problems be, be, uh, be corrected. Next one is uh, weak or non-existent patch processes. That is invariably, as I mentioned earlier, they're all going to have flaws. Eventually, they're going to be discovered. And so you must have a minimal touch uh, process for correcting those. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the, in fact, we have an example a little bit later on where some of the internet-connected televisions have pretty good update processes. Some of the uh, connected cars have good update processes built into those and uh, for over there uh, patching. There are others that don't have even any patching process, or if they do, there's no notification or uh, even a, a user-friendly process of doing that. So very clear distinction. You know, some of the devices are actually deliberately exposed to their net. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if it's an insecure thing and exposing to their internet, that's a bad thing. And so, you know, we keep talking about it every week, these uh, security surveillance DVRs uh, that have things like telnet exposed to the internet, web interfaces with, uh, that are exploitable. With default passwords. Uh, with default passwords. Hey, that's next. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sir, certainly uh, being exposed to the internet makes them internet exploitable. That is um, what we sometimes have called wormable, where the process of exploiting can be automated. There's no user touch associated with that. And then ultimately, it can turn into something that tries to exploit other things. So that's uh, the process that uh, we, we define as, as wormable. Great for botnets or botnet operators. Uh, next one, default passwords. And a lot of devices have uh, default passwords. Sometimes they're not even documented in the user documentation, but they are discoverable by folks that uh, have a an interest in doing that, and so uh, that makes them potentially exploitable. And uh, there really need to be better pro password management techniques. You know, just as an example, I would prefer that the default password, if there has to be a default password, that it be printed on the device right. so that, you know, if you have to reset it or something and get back to the default password, it goes back to that, uh, to that something that's printed on the device so that it's not something that's known to everybody in the world. These devices invariably don't have any virus installed on them. I don't know that they necessarily have to, but it's certainly an attribute that makes them potentially more exploitable. That is, if there are, if there are exploits, uh, it certainly has a less chance of detecting that fact if there's nothing to detect it. Uh, many of these devices um, are, are really based on just a handful of architectures. 
that makes it a lower learning curve for the folks that are trying to do the exploits. And uh, as a consequence, it's a large, or a large payoff uh, if they can get past that learning curve and be able to uh, exploit a lot of different device, types you, of devices. You don't mean like processor architectures here. You mean like... Yeah, actually I do. You do. I do mean processor architectures. So yeah. if you can develop the, your malware for a processor architecture and be able to use that across a variety of different types of devices, which we've observed, <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about that later with the yeah. Metis stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's true. That's, uh, it goes that and fetches is. an initial payload that goes and fetches an Intel, an ARM, a MIPS version, and mm -hmm. then just mm -hmm. tries running each one. And the ones that aren't for its architecture just fail, but the one that is runs. But it doesn't even try to check to figure out which yeah. one it is. I would, I would come back and say that's great, but, you know, before we came to Internet of Things, you had x86. I, that's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I think it's... I, it's a little bit of a twisted observation, mm -hmm. I would say, but it certainly is one that perhaps is not fully realized in the industry, that is, so long as the innards are the same, it doesn't matter what kind of package you put in it or how big the antenna is or whether it's got a camera or not, it's still effectively just exploitable in the same methods. I agree with that, okay. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> you know, one that I left off here, by the way, is um, uh, they don't export telemetry for helping to detect events. You know, a lot of these, uh, if you look at larger devices, routers, firewalls, they export logs so that you can do analysis and look for anomalies and activities. Mm -hmm. Or even, uh, you know, a typical computer generates system logs that you can export or even analyze on the device. Many of these systems don't really have that facility. I would say it depends on what device we're talking it, about. It does yeah. depend Things on like, the device. you know, if, if your ISP provides you a router or a modem, or a DVR, mm -hmm. certainly those are sending back some kind of telemetry. Maybe not security telemetry, but something. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely true. So it depends on the circumstances. When we get into the more autonomous, you know, sensor-type devices, this is going to become more of a Things that people issue, buy off the really, shelf and yeah. set up themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, and they're increasing capability. They're getting more bandwidth, memory, and CPU power, which, again, makes it more attractive. Doesn't necessarily make it more insecure, but certainly makes it more attractive as a target. And then uh, the fact that they're always on. You know, you basically connect them, forget them. The forgetting part is part of the, the issue here. <laughs> makes it great for botnets. Anyway, so those are some of the attributes that we find in the Internet of Insecure Things. So some of the examples over the last year. Most people are familiar with the, uh, the Charlie Miller and Chris uh, Vlasic GPAC demonstration that took place. It was uh, well, you know, basically televised even. I think they covered on 60 Minutes, is it, do I remember correctly? They did a recall, the manufacturer, Jeep Chrysler, did, the, uh, did a recall to be able to repair this, but that's a fairly arduous process. It would have been much better if they were able to do an over-the-air update. I don't find the flaw to be the fact that they were able to hack into things. Like I said, all software systems are flawed. When you find something, the, the real meat isn't being able to repair that. That's my, that's my point of view. And I guess the, uh, the sort of the other observation is they were able to successfully demonstrate it. Partly, and there were some network protections in place, but perhaps not sufficient enough to really control the scope of the impact. That is, they were able to get on a mobile network and be able to traverse that network to get to another peer mobile network device and uh, that potentially could have been uh, controlled a little bit better. So another layer would have been best. Uh, you know, early in the year, I think it was in February, BMW had done an over-the-air update to fix the security flaw. I think we could talk talked about that on this program. And, um, you know, that's the beginning of a good thing. 
I think it was actually perhaps a little bit of a marketing thing that they had stated this, but uh, clearly it was, a, it was a good thing. You know, in the television space, last week I think it was, we talked about, you know, Symantec did a report where they were able to get ransomware on their connected television. Um, I think it was, a, you know, the question, the ransomware wasn't really targeting televisions, and we right. talked about some of these, but the significance is that, you know, it isn't a possibility to infect a television, and I think the, uh, the point here is that the browser, as on the one hand, we've talked about internet-connected things and, you know, perhaps potentially exploitable from the internet, a lot of the devices that are sort of protected within a home network are perhaps a little less susceptible to those things, but as more and more users are browsing to the internet that is connecting to things that are not in a controlled manner, it creates this, a larger surface area for exploit. So uh, that's an example we talked about. And then we talked about the uh, Vizio television example where they had a certificate vulnerability, um, but they were able to do a software update. So uh, you know, basically you turn on the television, it says you need to do a software update, it prompts you for it, and uh, that's a low touch method. So a good thing in that regard. There's an article about connected toys <laughs> and uh, how you know more and more smaller you know and kids' toys were uh, uh, becoming connected and then uh, some uh, uh, potential vulnerabilities were described associated with uh, Hello Barbie and uh, it's still not exactly clear to me you know that the extent of the circumstances there uh, but that's uh, one that's sort of still playing out a little bit uh, a little bit and then uh, last but not least here uh, you know numerous small office, home office router have uh, dem demonstrated issues, not just flaws, but uh, surprisingly, in my opinion, a lot of them have back doors. And where you, you know, a lot of folks feel that that's really their security perimeter for their local network at their home. The fact that there's a covert back door in some of these devices is, uh, I think, significantly concerning and, um, you know, needs to be, uh, uh, and again, most of those devices really don't have a good patching process in place today. So anyway. I think the uh, Internet of Things thing is, uh, I mean, I think we're still in, uh, I'll say, the adolescent phase, perhaps somewhere between infant and adolescent <laughs> phase in terms of um, what, what it means from a security standpoint. We expect a significant proliferation. We're getting into the retail space. Last year we were talking about light bulbs, you know, remotely, you know, um, connected light bulbs. Um, what is it this year? The uh, in the in the retail space, what do you, what are the thing internet connected things that you're seeing? Well, um, we've seen those direct crockpots and things like that. Crockpots, yeah. I think I think Bell can extend their line to like other devices as well. Yeah. Um, the other day, I was at a store and they had like an egg holder. So presumably, you go, you buy eggs, put all your eggs in the special container, so measuring it, the eggs yeah, in there. It knows how many eggs you have. Wait, wait, are you? Connects to the internet, and it connects to your it's an internet guys, to guys, the cloud. You're literally putting all of your eggs in one internet connected basket. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so now you and, and you know but we just talked sale, about so some toys here. So I, the, the reason I brought that up is because it really is. I, I think we're really still just scratching the surface in terms of the number of things that actually can be connected. I think earlier in the year we talked about trash cans being connected oh, yeah. to the internet and some others. So it's uh, I think it's going to continue to uh, to grow. And, you know, we were just talking a little bit uh, ourselves about the uh, Raspberry Pi Zero, mm -hmm. which is the less than $5 computer that's coming out. They sold out right away, but as, the, uh, as that progresses, you know, as the cost of computers goes down and the ability to connect things, 
the number of things that it makes cost effective to include it go up significantly. I just hope that people stop and think whether they should. Right, just because it's cheap doesn't mean you should just let it hang out on the internet with exposed ports and services because somebody else can use it. It becomes a matter bad. of risk and convenience <laughs> and the important part is that the folks that are weighing these things off understand it, it, usually the convenience is, is kind of in your face, the risk perhaps not. And so that's well, it's I think important that's to know part. if you have eggs at home in your refrigerator. So that egg it is nice. Egg. Say, my wife would want that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it was on sale, so I don't think they'll be issuing patches. Especially this time of year, a lot of people are baking, and those eggs, they go fast. I got a marketing idea. We need to make a camera that works inside the refrigerator that can, like, articulate <laughs> with a light on it. So you can look inside your refrigerator from, from work. There we go. Right? There we go. And then get your shopping list together. Well, you should be using the ones that have the barcode scanners built in. Yeah, that's too much of me. Oh. I thought we were going to be discovering who took that last piece of pie, but okay. <laughs> All right, so Matt, let's go to you. And uh, you were going to talk, you, I guess last year you talked a little bit about the, uh, the vulnerabilities. We had just come off of shell shock and heart bleed, yeah. which were huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge. huge. I mean, they were important because not only were they, you know, things that you could easily exploit over the internet without too much trouble, I mean, the vulnerabilities ran deep in things that everybody was using. Mm -hmm. You had Bash and you had the SSL libraries, OpenSSL, mm -hmm. and, it, and it affected everybody. Yeah. And I had, you know, looking at that, I said, this, this is probably the start of something scary. Uh, we might be seeing more of these kinds of widespread vulnerabilities that affect all sorts of systems in the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that we did. Mm -hmm. We saw some pretty interesting bugs in 2015, but I don't know that we've seen anything quite on the scale of those. Yeah, Heartbleed was special. It was. It really was special, in my opinion, because it was remotely exploitable, there was really very little you could do to protect against it, and it really kind of gave the keys to the, it had the potential at least, that is the ability to throw packets and have it spit back private key information that potentially could not just compromise previous sessions, but future sessions as well, if you weren't in a position to protect against it. So that was special, but it, nevertheless. But so <laughs> even though I would say Heartbleed was special, it was easy to identify in terms of, do if I have monitor. an exposure here? Oh, yeah, yeah, shell shock, oh, who yeah. knows? The yeah. depth of whether Bash is in play in so many of these Good different point. things was very difficult to figure out. Yeah. Uh, not easy to test for necessarily. So. Yeah. Good anyway. point. Yeah, I mean because there were so many new, there were so many circumstances in which case it could show up. Right. Yeah. Right. So I tried to collect what we found this year and sort of do a, an overview of you know what was close to you know that level of, of impact and, and what was sort of a fizzle. Um, the first one on the list is stage fright, which was the the bug in mm -hmm. a, uh, an Android image preview library that was most famous for being exploitable through uh, an MMS message. So someone sends you a message over your phone and you've got instant ownage. So that, you know, by itself, in, you know, in the absence of everything else, should be quite scary. And it mm -hmm. did get a lot of hype around Black Hat. It got a lot of press and there were, there were more, you know, more bugs in the same family. This continued for a while, but mm -hmm. I'm not entirely convinced that this had the same kind of impact as a shell shock or a heart bleed. Um, it, it was... It's Android, and while that's you know a widespread operating system at this point, it's really not as big as the systems that Shellshock and Heartfully compromised. Right. Well, um, you'd also have to have like a list of MMS or people that you're going to send messages to, right? Well, Whereas you know, but you if could but, scan the internet ubiquitously, but to but so I, MMS I, bunch of I know for a fact that people were using Shellshock 
across. You know, if you, the same way you can auto-dial a whole bunch of numbers, people were scanning mm -hmm. the IP ranges and just spewing out their payloads to all the boxes they can. Well, then trying to grab server content, you know, databases, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that the people who are using it for just mass chaos, it had that potential still. Mm -hmm. uh, but mitigation was pretty easy. I mean, user could go into the menu and turn off the MMS functionality, you know, manually download it. So if someone sent you one of these messages, you would say, no idea who that is, mm -hmm. and you'd never be attacked, and you'd never be um, affected. Right. Um, and the handsets after Android 4.0 had ASLR enabled, which made it harder, and they eventually did patch that in the latest. Now, that being said, I think it had a major impact on the history of legacy Android systems. To me, this kind of a bug says, I should probably just throw away that, that phone I've been keeping that I might want to use someday. Mm. Because this exists, it's not going to get patched in most cases. Mm. So it was important. I'm just saying it's not on that, that same tier as shell shock and Heartbleed. Yeah, you know, actually, forgive the digression here, but, you know, that's one of the things I didn't mention about the Internet of Things thing is to have a clear life cycle support defined for in, in terms of it, what's the good if you have a good patch process if there's nobody creating the patches, right? So yeah. <laughs> forget the digression, but I think you made a good point there that is life cycle support around, the, uh, around these vulnerabilities is an important aspect of um, uh, being able to, protect yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Glad you brought that up. Um, so there was one bug that came out in the last few months that I think should have gotten more attention, which is the Java deserialization bug. It turns out that Java does use serialization and deserialization, which is taking data objects, packaging them for shipping to some other process or some mm -hmm. other system, and then unpacking them. Uh, it turns out that you could, depending on what was done with that object immediately afterwards, some systems were treating it as trusted content and you know, doing things that you wouldn't necessarily want to do with untrusted content, and you could mm -hmm. get you know, code execution using this bug. And it, it was found in a, uh, a very common library that's used for many Java applications. So it is fairly widespread, uh, and it does have a lot of impact. And if someone just wanted to connect to your system and use it, um, the, I don't know why it didn't get as much press as it is, maybe because people were tired of hearing about Java vulnerabilities. But I think you know, of all the ones that were there, this one was kind of special. Yeah, you know, it, I, I can only speculate myself. I think you kind of pointed it out a little bit earlier with the Android thing, that is the distinction between server vulnerabilities and client vulnerabilities may be somewhat the difference here. That is, I, I, if I understand, the, the Java serialization vulnerability is really a client-side vulnerability. And am I correct about that? I think, <laughs> I think it's one of those bugs where it really depends on how the data is being treated, it who's does, sending what. That's absolutely so I wouldn't call it. Side? I thought it was a server side, but. Yeah, I think you can do it on the server. Most of the applications that I saw it, it identified positively in were servers. Okay. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far myself to say that it's a clearly a job, uh, sorry, a server or a client bug. Okay. So. And, and just for the audience here, I don't know everything. <laughs> Nor do I. I learn as much from these None programs as, it, as yeah. folks that are listening to the program, I hope. So. <laughs> hope to. So. Okay. So the next big name bug, and then of course all important bugs must have fast uh, uh, names have and names, logos, right? yeah. was Venom. And I, this one was pretty interesting as well. It's a vulnerability in the, the virtual floppy disk driver mm -hmm. of QEMU, which is pretty well used uh, across a bunch of different virtualization products. VM compromise is a big deal. Typically, you know, if you're doing something like a malware analysis or you've got a, a virtual box set up specifically so that, you know, if it gets infected, you can just wipe it out, mm -hmm. you know, being able to escape that virtual jail is a big deal. Turns out that it, it was fairly easily patched. As far as I can tell, most of the systems that it, effect, it was affected by were patched. But still, you know, this was a pretty big deal. I think virtualization 
you know, if it was, I, I still see it mostly as an enterprise mechanism or mm -hmm. an enterprise tool. And I think if this was more of a consumer grade tool, people would be worrying about it a little bit more. And scanning for virtual machines, actually no, this one you actually had to be within the VM. Mm -hmm, you also right. you had to get execution before this this even was worth anything to you, which is not impossible, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, it's nowhere near the kind of one you're done kind of vulnerability you could right. just scan the internet for, like yeah. the other two I mentioned. The thing that sticks in my mind about this is why the heck do we even need a virtual floppy drive? Well, that's that's the thing. It's legacy. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's I guess somebody somewhere decided you need to be able to yeah. plug your ancient floppy disk into your your brand new and shiny VMs. Yeah, amazing. You're, maybe you're installing Windows 3.1. Who knows? <laughs> Could be. And uh, please don't do that. Okay. So, go <laughs> so um, the next one on the list was Freak, which was an SSL TLS downgrade attack, yeah. which is cool. You know, bugs that have to do with SSL and TLS are by their nature, important to the safety of the internet. Mm -hmm. So it did get the press it deserved. It did affect a lot of, t um, a lot of servers, um, but it was a downgrade attack. And it's valuable to, I would say, a, a much more limited set of attackers right. than any of the, the, the big names of 2014. So it really just gets you in a position where you can do some cryptanalysis. Exactly. And it, and it would be computationally possible. Yes. And uh, you'd have to repeat it many times for it's not like you get the whole keys of the kingdom. Correct. You get, a, you get to knock on the door really hard. <laughs> it was interesting in that it brought back into the light the idea of export ciphers, which is something right. from the early crypto wars of the 90s when people decided, well, we'll let you have crypto, but we'll let you have sort of a borked version of it because you're outside of the United States or whatever restrictions were in play. Mm -hmm. So interesting from a historical standpoint for certain um, and sort of a wake-up call to people who still had them enabled for some reason. Right in this era, but um, not the biggest. Uh, Ghost was one that I thought was going to have a lot more impact, and sort of for the same idea as, as Shellshock, where it was one of those bugs that it wasn't everything, it was in glibc, mm -hmm. and it was in a situation where you, in order to find if you were really affected by it, you might have to go and look at all your code and say, am I making these particular calls? Mm -hmm. now, you, know, you, you can always just go ahead and patch. The things that held this one back were that uh, apparently it was patched in 2013 already, so there was already a patch available by the time it was announced mm -hmm. and promoted. And it was arbitrary code execution, except you needed to be able to control calls that the system was making uh, for get host by name, which is a very right. specific call for looking up a host name, uh, which, which by the way is depreciated. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it had some very cool potential, but it wasn't that great. Right. Uh, right. Sorry. <laughs> then I, I was really, I thought that one was going to be the big one for the year until people started coming up with the, well, here's the hoops you have to jump through in order for it right. to work. Okay. And the last one I included kind of for fun, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was the iOS Cortex DOS attack, which you send it to somebody and their phone goes, Beep. it, it, well, that, that just made a noise. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is it was a denial of service. Your phone would right. appear to crash. Right. Um, but again, just denial of service. But of all the bugs here, it's the only one that I saw my friends outside of the security realm playing with and they mm -hmm. would send it to each other. So, you know, in terms of so, a social impact, I think it was probably the biggest one. Yeah, just about anybody could do it. Yeah. It didn't take it, and you just had to have an example that somebody sent to you, or you found and were able to actually send that out to somebody else. So, uh, yeah, good point on that. Although that it doesn't really qualify as a multi-platform It does not. Target. It was a, a relatively specific target in that case. So I guess the significance here um, you, you kind of started out that you didn't feel that you had done that well. I, personally, I, I mean, with all the examples that you, you came up with, it seems like 
we did have a number of things. It was a year of strong contenders, but it wasn't yeah. a year of cataclysmic bugs. And yeah. that's, I think, the, where we missed the mark. I think in any given year, you're going to have significant bugs like this. Okay. Nothing quite so game-changing. But All I right. think what we're seeing, in my opinion, more now over the past couple of years, is people are really inspecting uh, a lot of these common open source libraries that everybody's using that are like glibc, except mm -hmm. for this last iOS one, which is more of an anomaly, but like glibc, um, I can't remember what the other ones were that you had there, but mm -hmm. there's a bunch of these common libraries that are used across a lot of different tool sets that import them uh, and use them, and they're open source. You can go inspect the code, and I think people are doing that more to look for flaws um, uh, on the heels of the whole Heartbleed, uh, Shellshock, some of these other, it seems like there's a lot more of that activity going on that maybe had been before. It's just my observation. It's true. So I think you're right in that this is a trend that people are really mm -hmm. looking for more of these types of bugs. We just haven't found them yet. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, All right, Stan, let's go to you now. And uh, I guess the prediction was a rise in mobile malware, and I think specifically iOS space, because you know we've seen some growth certainly in the Android space. but. Tell us, what do you think? And this was Jim's prediction, so you're kind of proxying for Jim right. today, but uh, it wasn't tell a us prediction. What you think. It was a forecast. Yeah, it was a forecast. Yeah. Here. Thanks for correcting <laughs> me. I guess what we were saying, like you said, is that the volume and the activity around mobile malware is going to increase. And I was trying to find something on the internet that's going to help me, you know, show that in a picture. Yeah, some article that came out or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be honest, I couldn't find anything. I saw a lot of graphs from 2013, 2014, when people were ramping up and really excited about the growth of mobile malware. I couldn't find anything for 2015. But that doesn't mean that mobile malware hasn't increased uh, mm -hmm. over the past well, year. Everybody's waiting until 2016 until they put out their 2015 <laughs> summary report, right? Yeah, I think so. So specifically in iOS, I started kind of looking. And uh, on this show, we, we talked about our iOS bugs and iOS malware at least 15 times over the past year. And to me, you know, it's once a month. And for a platform that's, you know, kind of like a walled garden, mm -hmm. that's still quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, probably half or more of the bugs were for rooted devices. So devices that somebody... Jailbroken, yeah. Jailbroken. Yeah, I think that was uh, the... And, and that was, I think, one of the fundamental defining criteria or distinguishing criteria that we were concerned about is that Mal malware associated with non-jailbroken devices, and you know, to the extent that folks that are, you know, trying to stay within the protected boundary boundaries that are provided, are they still protected? Right. And uh, well, is it is it jailbroken devices or this app stores that are permitted once you're jailbroken? I think that you know it's it's both. Okay. Yeah. So it depends. Obviously, a piece of malware has to be delivered to you. But even some of the APT-based malware, like Xcode Ghost, uh, that came out this year, or was talked about this year, that one def de def depended on you having your phone, iPhone, jailbroken. So, but you couldn't get it at the, at the store anywhere. You really had to uh, have your phone jailbroken. And then there's other things, like there's some libraries that were commonly used in, by developers, like SDKs, mm -hmm. that had some malicious logic in there. Uh, but they were predominantly being used to support development of apps um, in like Taiwan and China and things like that. So there was some big stuff like that that didn't maybe require being jailbroken, but the rise in interest in that has increased. 
one more thing that I kind of was looking for to gauge the increase in mobile malware is the amount of uh, uh, systems out there that are available online, kind of like VirusTotal, that are dedicated to mobile malware analysis online. And I came across actually two pretty interesting ones. I saw they didn't have a lot of samples, but just by the virtue of investing uh, money and time into building a system like that, that speaks to me that you know we really have to ramp up uh, the our analysis capability because the threat is there. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people are moving to iOS-based and non-iOS-based, Android-based uh, tablets, iPhones, uh, regular phones, and so having that analysis capability is very important. So just by seeing that there are a lot of really nice, fancy websites out there where you can upload your APK file or something like that, uh, that to me means, yes, we're prepared, uh, mm -hmm. we're ready, and there has definitely been an increase in the first adoption of the devices and malware existing for them. All right, very so good. So Jim was right. <laughs> Jim was right. Okay, so what we're going to do here, we're going to grade each other. So for your own story, you don't grade yourself. That, that would be a little weird, right? <laughs> so the other three are going to go, it's kind of great. So we'll start with you, John, or your story. And uh, Stan, I'd like, on the APT story. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always give uh, John an A-plus for all the work he does. I can see this isn't going to work. <laughs> What's your rating? Yeah, I think John gets an A. An A? All I right. thought it was a very pedestrian kind of prediction, well, forecast of mine. So I don't really necessarily, even though I'm grading myself, I would give myself less of a score than you guys. <laughs> You're very hard on yourself, John. So, um, but anyway. But. I'll give him B+. plus. Okay, so second story was my own. And uh, I, I'm going to hold my ears so I can't tell what you're saying. <laughs> D minus. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, no, really, my opinion would be uh, an A, whatever. I don't know A pluses, but an A because... That really, this year has been inundated with IoT in terms of just the stories we've covered yeah. and what we see in the internet weather. So, yeah. Uh, go, go ahead, Stan. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I totally agree with that. I, we've really? covered many more stories about IoT. And I think the classification now that you're making about secure things and unsecured Internet of Things is very important and something to keep our eye on for 2016. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Pat? I would also give you an A um, for the same reasons. So I'm going to break the rules. I was, I'm going to give myself a B, and I'll tell you the reason why. Okay. Because of that distinction to some extent, you know, there, there's this, I, I think the, uh, there are certain industries that are doing pretty well at protecting themselves, and so they're not growing in that in any significant way. That is, when they found a vulnerability in the cars, they got fixed. And there is a structure around fixing cars, for example. And that was, and if you're, you know, a lot of the folks that are concerned about some things are related to, you know, the biggest hype of the year was really around cars. Well, there is a means to protect or correct, correct issues with cars. Some more convenient than others, but there's still means around that. And the report, in terms of the diversity of devices that are really exhibiting problems right now, it still hasn't really manifested itself. That is, we've been reporting on the security surveillance camera DVRs for at least two years now, if not three. And the, um, the home routers, have, you know, it's perhaps grown some. So I'm a little personally disappointed in, in the prediction or the forecast in the sense that I expected more devices to show up. And uh, there still is that potential for it, but it hasn't happened yet. 
So anyway, that's okay. I think in terms of dominance of yeah. coverage, I think we covered a lot of IoT. We did this absolutely, year. absolutely, we did. Um, so, so uh, for Matt's story, I should yeah. say, what do you think, John? Uh, I'll give it a B. I like the topic, but you're right. We didn't really hit the mark in terms of a giant, um, yeah. you know, groundbreaking vulnerability that really made us all kind of get into a war room and try to figure out how we're going to deal with this. Yeah. Um, and that, I'm, I'm not disappointed about that fact. No, I'm not either. <laughs> I'm happy that didn't happen. I'm feeling kind of kind today, but I, I would give it a nay because uh, something you mentioned, actually. Uh, you know, it's, it's these vulnerabilities that people started looking more into. So I think your point was that we'll see more of these vulnerabilities being uh, studied mm -hmm. in, in some of these uh, foundation kind of uh, libraries mm -hmm. and I think that's what's happened you know over this year it's actually something you mentioned John right more people have started looking at these libraries that we use and I think that's caused some of the uh, yeah. some well, of the stories then you should over. probably give the security community an A and give me a right. more appropriate <laughs> yeah I agree I, I would say B as well I think it's uh, I, th I think we've uh, it's like John said we haven't seen that you know a repeat of the shell shock or uh, art bleed, art bleed, right? So, but the uh, you know I think it kind of dovetails into the story that you covered, Stan, in the sense that one of the more significant Apple that is iOS application um, vulnerabilities that existed or Trojans malware that existed was based on download of a Trojan library that, like John was referring to, got used across a large number of apps, snuck into the store, and later were. Uh, had to be sort of eradicated, and so um, we'll go on and then uh, go we'll to the story that you covered, and we'll create, <laughs> we'll create Jim, Jim and Proxy here. So how, what do you think, John? I'd still give that like a B, maybe a high C, only because, I don't, I don't know, I didn't see the, the mobile malware as, I don't think we covered it as much as we did maybe the year before. Yeah. There was a lot of Android malware in yeah. 2014, and I don't know that we had as many stories to cover. Not as many that. notable. Not yeah, not I'd as agree. many notable. Or yeah. groundbreaking ones. So some uh, and you know it's 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 sort of interesting that as we grade the better grades in this, a bad grade is actually a good thing. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm not disappointed that there have been less uh, you know fewer stories about Android and uh, you know we really haven't seen any significant problems in uh, in iOS. Yeah, I would I would give it a, a B minus probably. I mean, yeah. the one thing that sticks out in my mind, probably because it's catchy, was that the the Verizon DBIR had a section. I think it was titled "I've got 99 problems, but mobile malware is not one." Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I still think that the people who are doing the metrics and figuring out if this is still really a big problem, they're not convinced yet. And so, right. neither am I. Yeah, you know, I guess to sort of the counter argument there is, uh, I suspect that the advanced actors have capabilities that exist mm -hmm. or just not seen them in wide well that's that's i think we did see something in the um, the hacking team leak didn't we wasn't mm -hmm. that the xcode ghost yeah was that oh, was it? no yeah. i'm not sure about that either, either way i'm fairly sure that we did see that they you know as a boutique shop they were developing for those platforms and i would assume that anybody who was similarly resourced would also be you know developing for those platforms mm -hmm. but in terms of a a widespread problem? Yeah, it's not widespread, and that, that, that is part of the challenge or the problem. That is, if it isn't widespread, it's less likely to be, get into the uh, sort of the open community and recognized, or even discovered in the first place. Sure. 
think those okay. are things we're probably going to be covering maybe years from now. Kind of like the APT mm -hmm. has always been around, but maybe two, three years ago is where it really blew up and everybody was interested. You know, that, that's yeah. an... They, there's stuff going on with, with these devices now that we probably don't know much about, but two, three years from now, somebody will kind of piece it together and say, you know, mm -hmm. this was actually happening in 2015, 2014. Well, I was thinking the other, I think the opposite direction is, at what point do these stories feel like they're passe where we're picking them for the show? We go, oh boy, another... Yeah, one of these. True. So maybe yeah. they're not as well represented because we're just fatigued with them. Yeah. Well, you're making a good segue in the internet weather report. <laughs> There's a lot of fatigue in there. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I would give it about a C or a B, a B minus as well for uh, for Jim's uh, forecast. So, you know, I, I guess what we're going to do next week is talk a little bit about our forecast for next year and. Um, I got a feeling there are going to be there's going to be a little bit of overlap. We'll have to see how that uh, how that uh, pans out. I think I've got a good new one. Good. Yeah. All right. So looking at the Internet Weather Report, we'll jump right into the top ten most probed ports at the top of the list. Port 23, uh, followed by Port 80 and 443. Not a lot of movement on this one. The, the and, uh, 1900 UDP following that. 22 TCP following that. Those two moved down just a, a slot or two here. The biggest movement was on 53.413. We talked about that last week. We're going to revisit it again here today. And then followed by 445 TCP, 33.89, and then uh, port 21 TCP. Most of the port 21 that we've been seeing that gets it up on the list is actually uh, sort of research-oriented. It's not considered innocuous in, uh, uh, behavior in itself. Uh, and then uh, the 33.89 is still password guessing against remote, remote desktop protocol, which, um, you know, we've seen some really crazy examples around that in the past where, uh, it, you know, uh, like small restaurant cash registers are, you know, oh, accessible RDB, to yeah, yeah. remote desktop Point protocol. Point of sale so, systems, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's one that certainly if you're in a medium-sized or small business, you want to pay attention to that. Um, and there's could, still Mordo uh, out there. If you hook a machine yeah. up to the internet with RDP and a nice simple password on it, like password, yeah. Mordo will get that thing like within and a no, couple hours. No time flat, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's not, it, it, you know, it doesn't rank up as high as some of the others, but it's certainly one you want to be paying attention to. In terms of the uh, scan probes on port 23 TCP, that's uh, obviously Telnet, you know, remote login here. Looking at the last uh, 90 days of activity here, it's actually gone down over the last couple of weeks. Basically, looking back uh, about a week here, it's continued to go down from where we had seen, but uh, I anticipate that it's going to jump up uh, sometime in the near future. And then looking at the number of sources doing that probing on port 23, that has not diminished as significantly as, it, as the uh, number of probes. It basically suggests that perhaps the more loaded systems are the ones that are dropping off later, and uh, so the number of IP addresses is dropping off uh, at a, a lower rate. Looking at port 53413 UDP, now this is that Netis router backdoor. In this case, we're looking at the number of uh, probes that are occurring on the port. Last week, we saw a significant number of those probes, not as many over the last week or so. It's still relatively significant. Remember, we're looking in this case at hundreds of millions of probes per hour is the scale that we're looking at here almost in the uh, order of billions per hour. However, conversely, if we look at the number of sources doing that probing, the number of source addresses, uh, basically the number of participants in the botnet that are doing this probing, that has not dropped anywhere near as much. So the ones that are participating still are doing it lower and slower, 
perhaps to uh, hide from the radar a little bit better. We're looking at uh, still on the order of about 50,000 sources uh, within the last week that had been um, doing that probing just in the last day or so on the order of about 35,000 sources. And uh, so I, what I did is I took a group of that around 35,000 sources, took a small sampling, just short of 500 of the addresses, randomly sampling through that set, and just uh, did a geographic mapping of those to try to show where the concentration is. And you know, the biggest concentration is actually in China and uh, in other parts of Asia. We see some in South America, some in Europe, a little bit of a concentration in, uh, I guess, the southern portion of Europe there. Not so many in the United States. So, you know, I, I'm not sure if you call that a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, it's a little bit of a different distribution than you typically see for this type of activity. Now, John, you'd helped with a little bit of analysis. I covered this last week as well, mm -hmm. so probably won't go into as much detail here today, but uh, perhaps you have an observation or two about uh, the No real observation here. other than I wasn't on the show last week, but it's an interesting payload in that these devices can just spew them out. It's UDP, so you don't have to establish a connection. You can just spew them out, and in the payload is the instruction that you want this thing to do. Mm -hmm. So if it hits a machine that's vulnerable to the Netis exploit or this backdoor, it will follow the instruction. A lot of them just goes and downloads an initial payload, and then that initial payload probably goes, like I said, it'll go fetch malware binaries for various platforms, Intel, ARM, MIPS, and then just try to execute them all in series. And one of them will work, the other ones will just fail, and then mm -hmm. the machine's infected. Um, and then it goes from there, and then they begin scanning for additional devices and whatnot, so, or whatever instructions right. they give to them. Now, I'm, I'm going to speculate. I don't think we ever got to that point, but the uh, speculate that these are generally being exploited for the purpose of denial of service attacks. But, it's good. Um, I don't know. I, you know. I haven't really tied them directly to yeah. denial of service attacks, but they're definitely engaged in more recruiting and scanning for additional devices to compromise. So mm -hmm. that wormable type of thing. Once they get compromised, they start looking for more devices similar to themselves that they can compromise. All right. Good. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, we see port 23 here. Now, I think we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It was taking up more than half the pie chart. So that's uh, diminished somewhat. That was reflected in actually the graph we looked at a little bit earlier, where we were looking at the number of sources doing the probing on port 23. This is followed by 53413. We've already just talked about that one. The next one that's a little bit surprising here and actually moved up 917 spots in terms of the top rankings. It's uh, 2332 TCP. We're, we're going to take a little closer look at that in a moment. Followed by 445 TCP and then um, well, basically we have 22 TCP showing up there with uh, some other P2P activity showing up. So looking at uh, 2332 TCP, here we have the number of sources doing that probing and you know, actually, I don't know if this is a coincidence or not. We looked at the more recent probing on 53413, and it was up around 35 or 40,000 sources. This one also is up around 35 or 40,000, you know, between 35 and 40,000 sources. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. I We're going to do an overlap analysis, and it was very not much few overlap, right? overlap, less than 1% in terms of the note, like the IP addresses scanning yeah. 53413 versus 2332. Yeah. But, that being said, similar types of devices, DVRs. Um, there's one particular brand that's very heavily concentrated in this mm -hmm. 2332 TCP, but there are other flavors of things going on uh, with just a big predominance. So there's one which I have not identified yet. I just didn't get a chance to at this point. All right. 
and then looking at the number of probes here, significantly lower number than we had seen on the others. Otherwise, in the uh, scale of hundreds of millions per hour, this is in the scale of tens of millions per hour, you know, peaking up around uh, just, I guess, about 57 million probes per hour. So uh, not as significant there. Now, interesting, if we look at the geographic map of this one, again, a sampling. This is a little bit of a bigger sampling, so it looks a little denser. But if we look at this geographic distribution compared to the 53413 geographic distribution, as I pointed out earlier, that distribution was a little bit unusual to see it heavily concentrated in Asia and Southern Europe. Here we have, again, a, a big concentration in Asia and Southern Europe. So uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's uh, some relationship between the two here uh, in terms of the types of devices and the, uh, the prominence of those devices. Right. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Stan, for joining us today. It's good to have you back. Matt, good to have you back. And John, it's good to have you back. You've been out for a few yeah, weeks actually, here. So. Uh, yeah, I've missed a couple of shows, but <laughs> so, good to be back. I'm Brian Rexer. We'll be back next week with a new episode to talk a little bit about predictions, I believe. Mm -hmm. Forecasts. Forecasts. Thanks for correcting my own correction. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as we said, and until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.